Hello and welcome to part two of this two-part podcast series recorded by WorkSmart that's reviewing the impact and implications of the Central Bank of Ireland's proposals for an individual accountability framework and senior executive accountability regime. I'm Philip Allen and in part one of my discussions with Julie Pardy, WorkSmart's Director of Regulation and Market Engagement, Julie walked us through the key parts of the individual accountability framework, outlining how RFSPs will have to, one, clearly frame where their responsibilities and decision-making rest within their organisations, two, adhere to the new conduct standards that set out the standards of behaviour for senior management teams and their other staff, and three, meet the new enhancements to the central bank's fitness and probity regime. In this podcast, Julie takes a closer look at the lessons RFSPs can learn from the UK's experience of applying the senior managers and certification regime, the importance of RegTech in managing the regime, and the next steps in-scope firms should undertake now to successfully implement the individual accountability framework. So let's get to it. Julie, when UK firms were preparing for the senior managers and certification regimes, or SMCR, many did underestimate the task in hand, ignoring at their peril the importance of technology to administer the regime from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest things that organisations can do is save themselves an awful lot of pain up front by making some decisions to consider budget, consider tech and actually have themselves fully resourced because when you get to a point or certainly with the UK firms some have looked to purchase only when it's become a problem and obviously there is a bigger problem in transitioning accumulated data that is in a whole variety of sources and formats is a bigger problem than if you start from scratch with a purpose-built solution built with the intention of managing a very specific regulatory regime. On implementation of SMCR, do you you think that UK firms underestimated the design and ongoing requirements of the regime? One of the reasons that they underestimated was, well, we're going to apply the regime to ourselves and then we're going to walk away. And I don't mean as in walk away and never to be seen again, but once we've applied it, job done, we can move on without a consideration that these things constantly move and change as the shape of the organisation and the workforce changes. But also with regards to annual processes, I think maybe there was insufficient thought given to the number of departments involved in the decision making. It's not just going to be HR, it's not just going to be compliance, you might have HR, compliance, risk, legal, operations, it depends where the different functions that gather the data that's needed to make the assessments, it depends where they sit within an organisation. And just the fact that some organisations may have a two-person assessment and sign-off process. Some people might have three, some people might have only one, but whichever you have, there's still a communication piece and there's still a process flow of data that needs to move around an organisation. And if you're doing that on an Excel spreadsheet and you're doing that on Outlook with attached documents, it can be a recipe for disaster because it's very easy for something to go wrong very quickly. We touched upon the removal of the participation link. Um, but what other changes do you see are, are being made by the CBI's enforcement investigation and sanction powers? With this particular heads of bill, which is slightly different to what we have in the UK, it looks like the legislative framework gives the CBI the power to impose 
extra requirements around notification of the conduct standards. So if, if we think about it here in the UK, we had the standards come in, they were slightly different to what we had before, different things applying to different people. And the firms went through the process the best that they could to train people. Actually, to start with, e-learning was done. That's great for information delivery, but it's not great when you're trying to understand the concept of conduct rules and the impact of that in a role-relevant scenario. Now, what this seems to suggest is that there might be the ability for the CBI to actually ask for more information for firms, not just around people that breach conduct rules, but the training records or the training processes to help people understand how these things are going to impact them, which actually I think is a great thing because the firm will need to be able to demonstrate over and above e-learning what they've actually used to help people understand their responsibilities and accountabilities. Let's talk about implementation timelines. When can we expect the scheme to be implemented? Well, at the moment, we don't actually have any full detail on when it's likely to be implemented. The word on the street, though, is that we are very likely to have a consultation paper by the very early summer. So we're hoping that we get something by the end of June, if not by the end of June, maybe by the time that the schools break up for the summer holiday. There's already been talk and confirmation that the regulator expects this to move quickly because there's been so much time while this regime's been in the making and therefore it looks as if if we had a CP say by June the earliest I think is three months realistically to take feedback and then push out a policy statement I think they can do it quicker but I think that would be tricky So if we got a policy statement in the autumn, then we could maybe expect a six to 12 month implementation period or a staggered implementation period. So I think it's still some way off, but I think as soon as we know the the meat of the regulatory rule book, then the CBI will expect firms not to hang around and be ready to go pretty quickly. And I hear that a lot of the big consulting firms have been doing a lot of work in Ireland to support firms get ready for the proposed change. In your experience, Julie, what are those steps that firms can undertake and what should they be doing now? They should be looking at all of their committees, looking at which committees report to who, which are the committees that are committees of the board and which aren't, and maybe making that distinction when they're doing their gathering of data, challenging their governance arrangements more generally. So do I have the right committees? Do I have the right terms of reference? Do I have the right membership of those bodies? And then is there a cross-reference between the individuals and those committees and the accountabilities they might have within those? Absolutely getting people's job descriptions completely up to date because those will be most helpful when they're writing statements of responsibilities. And I think getting getting a very senior sponsor in place for the project, getting funding and resourcing ready. We know in the UK when the, certainly I looked at the projections of cost that were laid out and thought they were way undercooked in terms of what it might cost a firm to implement something like this. So I think there is a resource issue. And I think from what we've seen is the best projects work when there's a real collegiate approach where we have representation from compliance, from HR, from risk legal and somebody 
very clearly identified as a senior sponsor and those ones that go about it as a team of interested people seem to end up with a more effective implementation than those departments that fight each other not to be responsible for the project. <laughs> you touch on a very good point there. Um, I can't remember the last time I saw you with a bunch of crayons or post-it notes on a whiteboard saying, who's responsible for this and who's responsible for that? But those were the times in 2016 when the SMCR came into effect. That That's what some firms very late in the day were doing, weren't they? And it was that bun fight between departments. Oh, I don't do that and I don't do this. And you don't want at the midnight hour people saying, oh, I'm definitely not taking responsibility for that. So preparation and planning does count. If you think about it through the eyes of the regulator, what are they really interested in? If you know, if you forget all the new terms and the new acronyms that we've got to get our heads around, the bottom line is at a given moment in time, they want to be able to go on that day, on a windy Tuesday in wherever, who was responsible and what was the exact shape of accountability in that organisation. And that's one of the reasons we built the timeline functionality within our solution, where it allows you by timeline, by date, to go anywhere in history and say, on this particular day, who were the accountable executives, who was holding controlled functions, where were people in their fitness and probity assessments, what committees did they sit on at that point, and so on. It's thinking about that real life working scenario as to what the shape of an organisation looks like and be able to track that and manage that firms will find most helpful when they're looking at accountability regimes. You raised a number of red flags and warning signs that firms should be aware of. Are there any other issues? And I'm talking about Overcomplicating the responsibilities map was one of the challenges that people have. Were there any other challenges? We saw very early on when this term management responsibilities map came in and the ability to maybe model one's arrangements, people were constantly asking us for a visual aid that they could use some kind of technological tool to try and visualise the shape of their organisation. And I think firms struggled a bit and maybe lost time in the projects And then secondly, this idea that a management responsibility map, if you key everything into a a solution, that you should be able to press a button and at the touch of a button, I've got my management responsibilities map. Well, from a regulatory perspective, it's not just the facts, it's how it all hangs together and why. So the management responsibilities map, if you look at the document that the FCA published back in, I think it was about August 2016, where they applied the regime to themselves, there's some really nice visuals where you can look and see who was accountable and what and why. And we've used some of that concept in our technology to try and help people get to grips with that. But when we talk management responsibilities map, think why have we chosen to structure and manage our business in this way? And why does it work for us? And a management responsibilities map is a combination of the facts, which is Julia's this function and she's accountable for that, together with Philip is, you know, accountable for this function and this is how his role is. But then it's bringing it all together and then it's saying, well, we are a, we're a bank, we're a wealth firm, we're an insurer. We've chosen to structure our business like this because we serve these markets because and that stuff won't necessarily be in an SMCR or an an IAF tool because that's the that's the written narrative that the firm needs to put around the facts and the other thing is when writing the statements of responsibility we've seen senior manager one 
is accountable for and we've seen less than 10 words in a statement of responsibility which I don't think is any help to anybody and that's not what the regulator was looking for but we've also seen war and peace so it's the what is somebody responsible for not necessarily how they're going to discharge it and I think that distinction and trying to break that and again there's some good guidance from the regulator that they put out in 2019 where they were trying to help firms because there'd been some complaints around we don't think you're helping us enough we need a bit more guidance as to how to write a saw how to put together an MRM and so the FCA published this guidance document I think it was around February, March time in 2019. And that gave examples of how they might consider a good saw or maybe one that wasn't very helpful. And it would be worth firms looking at those as well, because I'm sure there will be some similarity to regulatory expectations from the CBI. Julie, RFSPs can't underestimate the critical role that internal audit have to play in supporting corporate governance arrangements and the culture such arrangements promote. We've seen a difference in the approach of internal audit, definitely in the UK. So in the first year or two, absolutely rightly so, internal audit would go, okay, what type of firm am I? Which senior manager should I have? And what ancillary policies, procedures and processes should I have? And then they go, right, I've got an SMF1, an SMF2, an SMF3. And they would go through that checklist approach. Have I got one? Should I have one? And that's absolutely right. And so once you've got past that first assessment, then the next assessment is, so on a day-to-day basis, if I assess this regime, not with the, have I got the right bits, but what is it doing for my business? Is it being run properly? And is it achieving the outcomes that the business set? If it isn't, then maybe that it's not working as effectively. So is there a piece for firms in Ireland to look at and say, right, we know this is about cultural change, this is about accountability, but it's also the opportunity to make changes for that, those things and processes that don't work well in your organisation. We've all got them. We all know where our, our weak points are. So is it the opportunity to bring that thinking in and say, we're going to use this regime to help us improve these things, help make a difference? And then you can measure yourself against not only that culture and accountability, but also an improvement of X, Y, Z, whatever that might be. Okay, Julie, let's conclude this podcast by putting a smile on the faces of our listeners. And it's fair to say that when SMCR in the UK was first unveiled, it was seen as another regulatory burden. But three years on, the evidence from the industry sat in stark contrast to those initial fears as firms exhibited a serious commitment to change They embrace the spirit of new rules and now, I think, have a population of senior managers that have a sound understanding of what it means to be a senior manager operating in the UK financial services sector. Has that been your experience of helping firms implement accountability regimes, not just in the UK, but also in Australia and Singapore? Absolutely. And that is something that it's such a wide ranging regulatory change for firms, there needs to be some benefit, you know, whether it is, I don't know, an improvement in the way firms run their performance appraisal process, an improvement in the way that they target training for individuals, an improvement in the governance arrangements around committees, whatever it is that people are looking for, build that into this process and get some tangible benefits out of it, because it is very easy to actually, I suppose, see this kind of thing as a taxation cost as opposed to a a cultural change programme. And I guess that's the 
difference. And that's what the regulator is looking for. Thanks, Julie, and thank you for listening to this podcast that we hope you enjoyed. If you missed part one of this series, fear not, you can download it alongside other podcasts and webinars on conduct, culture, and accountability anytime from the insights section of our website, worksmart.co.uk. WorkSmart has extensive experience advising international firms on their implementation of similar accountability regimes elsewhere in the world, and we'll be delighted to assist you in working through the implementation of the IAF and SEER in the context of your business. For further information, please reach out to Julie Pardy via email, julie.pardy at worksmart.co.uk.